Hey, I'm Michael, online pastor at Silverdale Baptist Church, and I'm excited to welcome you to our podcast. Now, after you listen to this episode, I hope you'll stick around for just a moment. I'll be sharing about some resources we have for you, as well as a few things going on at Silverdale right now that we would love for you to be a part of. Now, I really hope this podcast is just what you need today to help you in your relationship with Jesus. shared with you, um, I guess, four or five weeks ago, and uh, one of the vision things that we're praying through and trying to work through is um, by 2020, you know, we'd like to have that corner part of on Bonnie Oaks as, as a coffee shop, as an alternative, alternative service, and also to use the profits to use for local missions, so that was just a testimony of a person at our church, Cody, but um, we continue to ask for prayer as a, as a church. We're praying through this, we're seeking this, and so that's why I want to just keep this before us. So now let's get into our series, what we're talking about. We're in this series called Table Talk, and uh, what we're doing is we're going through the Gospel of Luke, and we're specifically looking at places in the Gospel of Luke where we see Jesus um, having dinner with people or, or, or spending time in their homes together, and we're seeing the things that Jesus says is important to him. He's clarifying some of the things that he's about. He's clarifying about some of the things that are true about him and about God, and so we see some tremendous things happening specifically in the book, book of Luke around meals and hospitality, and uh, this morning is no different. We are going to be in Luke chapter 19, verse 1, so you can grab your Bibles, our smartphone or tablet, and turn to Luke 19, 1. You can also open up your Bible study outline, your your bulletin, there's going to be an outline you can follow along as well if you desire. So now, let me tell you in advance what the goal is of today's message The goal is, is from the text we're looking at, is to answer one question. One question we want to answer this morning is this. Why did Jesus come? It's an important question. And how you answer it is going to determine how you worship Jesus and how how you chase after Jesus and follow Jesus because many different people in many different places answer this in many different ways. And as I've been in different locations, different people groups and different tribes and even different generations, I've seen that people often try to answer this in a way that best fits them or their time or their affinities, the things that they enjoy. But the thing is, we don't want to be a people going around pushing into Jesus, telling Jesus what he's about We want to be a people that come to the Word of God, and we submit to it, and we say, Jesus, tell us. Tell us why did you come, and once you tell us that, we're going to submit to it and try to understand how everything flows from that. So that's what we're looking at. The question is, why did Jesus come? The answer is found in our text today. And we are going to begin the text by looking at, it's it's Luke 19.1, we begin answering this question by meeting a man named Zacchaeus. So in verse 1, 19.1, we're going to look at Zacchaeus the sinner. Now, before we even look at Zacchaeus, I want to mention something. Uh, if you have um, been at church really any time at all, going to vacation Bible school or anything like that, you've probably heard a song about Zacchaeus. Have you heard the song? Who? Okay, who wants to sing the song? Right? It's a good song. Zacchaeus was a, come on, okay, okay, it's beautiful. Here's the thing I want to talk about before we actually look at the text. Um, That is a beautiful song, 
And then what we got to understand is that song was written as a response from the text. Now, because we know the song so well, often what we will tend to do is now have the song speak into the text, but we get it backwards. Does that make sense? And so we want to be on guard with that. We don't want the song to color how we see the text. The text is supposed to color how we see the song. So I kind of want us to, because I have this idea, I remember this, I, I, I remember the song and I remember a cart. is there a cartoon or something with it? Because I remember this wee little man doing some wee little things, but... Um, I don't want to think about that. I don't want to think about I want the text. I want the text. I'm not saying anything bad about that song, but let's don't let the song color the text. The text colors the song. So let's get into this 19.1. Here we go. He, that's Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. We'll stop there. So the text begins by telling us that Jesus is just passing through Jericho. See, Jericho is not his final destination. He is headed towards Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, he is going to be crucified on the cross in my place for my sin. That is imminent. So he's wrapping up his earthly ministry. And so he's heading to Jerusalem. But in order to get to Jerusalem, he's got to pass through Jericho. Now, as he's going through Jericho, he's going to have his disciples with him. He's probably going to have a crowd around him. He's going to have followers, people just wanting to see who he is, people who are just there for curiosity's sake. So you got this large crowd, and they're going to be coming through Jericho on their way to Jerusalem. Now, I'm unsure how the people in Jericho were made aware of the fact that Jesus was passing through, but nonetheless, the information got to the people in that city, hey, Jesus is going to be passing through the city. Now, the people in the city, most of them had never met Jesus. They may not have even seen Jesus, but they all knew who Jesus was. I mean, they've heard about Jesus. I guarantee you everyone in Jericho had heard that Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. They knew that some people claimed he was the Messiah. They knew that he was a miracle worker. They knew all these things. So they get word or wind of the fact that Jesus is going to be passing through their city. And I imagine on that day, there's great excitement. If you were at work and you heard, hey, Jesus is passing through, I imagine you might take the the, the day off. I want to see Jesus. I want to see this man who everyone is thinking highly of and saying all these things about. I just want to see him. And so that's what's going on. Jesus is passing through Jericho on his way to Jerusalem. The people in Jericho, they're aware of this. They want to see it. They want to get to know him or at least get a glimpse of him. That's what's going on. Verse 2. It says, and behold, real quickly, that's to grab our attention. It's to let us know something unique is occurring. Behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. We'll stop there. It's interesting it gives us his name. And I thought about talking about this, but we don't really have time to get into it. Um, it's not often, a speci- there's only one other time in Scripture where you see a tax collector's name given, and he went on to be a disciple. The question is, why was Zacchaeus' name given here? When other times in Scripture, it just says a tax collector. There's many reasons, I believe, but one of the reasons why is we're supposed to get a hold of his name. His name is important. His name has a meaning. Zacchaeus' name means clean, innocent, pure, righteous. That's the meaning of his name. So if you were just to hear his name, the assumption would be that he's a pretty good guy. He's got this really good, righteous, clean, outstanding name. First impression, Zacchaeus, you're a pretty good guy. 
But then you get to the second half of verse 2, and it says, He, that's Zacchaeus, was a a chief tax collector and was rich. I'm going to pause there because immediately we're to see a tension being built here. There's a tension. We're supposed to look at this and say, hmm, and that's interesting. Because Zacchaeus means clean, innocent, pure, and righteous, but we see that he's a tax collector, and we know that tax collectors are anything but righteous. They're completely opposite. So you have this man with his name actually being completely different than his name. We know that tax collectors in the first century, specifically, they were dirty dogs, crooks, and cheats. The Bible says that, but also do all first century documents talking about them. They're not good men. They are not good men. They were the lowest of the low. And we're told here that Zacchaeus was the chief, meaning in that region, Jericho, there were lower level tax collectors under him, and all of them had to pay a percent of their take home, the things that they're ripping people off and give to him. And as a result, he was exceedingly rich. That's the tension. That's the tension the Bible is setting up for us. You got Zacchaeus, clean, innocent, pure, righteous, but he's a chief cheat. All right, he's not a good guy, not a good guy. The question might be at this time, how do you resolve that tension? You see, I would say that's not a tension unlike many of us have gone through in our own lives, um, but either way, how is this tension to be resolved? We're going to see it's resolved through Jesus, and we'll get to it, but that's the tension going on. Verse 3. And he, and that's Zacchaeus, was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. There's a lot of things we could pull out of this text, but there's some specific things that I want us to focus in on. The first thing I want you to see is this word, seeking. It tells us a great deal about the heart of Zacchaeus. You see, in the Greek, that word is in the perfect tense. It lets us know that Zacchaeus is in the state of an ongoing, continual effort to try to see Jesus. So he has more than curiosity. It's just not curiosity. He has this seeking going on. I would say by the grace of God, he has been made aware of the fact that he is a sinner and that God is holy and that he's been alienated from God So he is seeking, he wants to know more about this Jesus. Once again, I would say um, where he's at is not, if you're a believer, if you're a Christian, um, you probably identify with this to a degree, completely actually. I would say before God saved you by his grace, he made you aware of the fact that you were a sinner and somehow you knew there was a need, you knew, knew, knew you were lacking something. You might not know exactly what that was, but there was this curiosity, there was this drawing, there was this what I would call the wooing of God, the Spirit, who's been placed upon you and you're made aware of this fact. So he wants to seek Jesus. But we're told here, Zacchaeus, he got a problem. He's got a twofold problem. First problem, this crowd is large. Second problem, he's small. So the picture here is is that this crowd is so thick that if you were to walk behind it, you couldn't see through it. You're not going to get a glimpse of Jesus through this thick crowd. And he's too small. He cannot see over it. And that's a problem. He desires to seek Jesus, 
to see Jesus, but there is a problem. But Zacchaeus is a man of action, and he does something about it. Look at verse 4. So he, that's Zacchaeus, ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. So evidently, Zacchaeus, he knows the city of Jericho. He knows the road that Jesus has to pass through in order to get to Jerusalem. And so evidently, he's like, you know what? The crowd's really thick here. It's really crowded right here. What I'm going to do is I'm going to do some back alleys. I'm going to do the cutoff and get to an area where the crowd's not so big now. And that's what he runs ahead. He knows the area. There's a tree he knows of. He climbs into it and he's going to sit there and he's going to wait for the crowd to pass his way. He's in his sky box, right? He is comfortable and he is waiting for Jesus. And that's the picture we get, we're built with to begin with. Zacchaeus, clean, pure, righteous name. But he was anything but righteous, right? But he has been seeking God. He's got the stirring of God, the Spirit in him, or on him, the conviction of his sin. He wants to see Jesus. That is the setup of this man, Zacchaeus. Now let's shift the picture to Jesus and look at Jesus the Savior. Because that's kind of how the text does. You shift from Zacchaeus, and now we're going to focus on Jesus. Verse 5, here's what it says. And when Jesus came to the place, and that's referring to the place where Zacchaeus is in the tree, he, and that's Jesus, looked up. There's no hesitation here. It's an immediate looking up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. That's a crazy, crazy story. I mean, I mean, try, try to picture it. Try to, I, try, I try to picture things a lot in my head. It's, 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 I don't know, I don't know, I don't know what Zacchaeus was doing in that tree, but I was thinking about when I was younger, I would, um, occasionally we would have a parade in my hometown. Um, you guys, you guys been to parades? I don't know if parades are such a big deal anymore. They still have them, but we used to have them. And I remember you would get there kind of early and you'd stake out your corner and, um, on the route. And, and as the parade was coming, you could see it far away. Maybe there was a cop car in the front with some sirens or something, and, 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 and it's far away, and then they get closer and closer. And, and as it got closer, the crowd would get more and more excited, right? Truthfully, I'm a kid. I knew they'd be throwing candy. That's what I was there for, right? Got the best place to get the candy. But they get closer and closer, and you get more and more excited. Surely that's what's going on with Zacchaeus. He's in that tree, and he sees the crowd far off, and now the crowd starts passing by more, more, and more. And then all of a sudden, he sees a head. He sees the head of Jesus, and, and surely he got excited, right? And he sees Jesus getting closer and closer and closer, and he's like, this is awesome. And then all of a sudden, Jesus gets right in front of him, and then Jesus stops. Now, once again, I, I don't know what Zacchaeus did. I know what I would have done. I would have froze, right? That's weird, man. What's going on? And then Jesus turns and looks at Zacchaeus. The interesting thing to me, and it's important to note, like, like Jesus didn't look around for Zacchaeus. It's not like he's like, where you at, Zacchaeus? The picture here is Jesus rotating his head exactly where Zacchaeus is, his eyes meeting Zacchaeus' eyes and saying, Zacchaeus. It's incredible. Calls him by name. Zacchaeus, hurry and come down for I must stay at your house. This one verse 
that part of that verse hammers home the complete and total sovereignty of God. And what I want to do is just walk through this at a a little slower rate. I want you to follow me. I want you to see this. There is no way to read this and see this and not come away in awe of our God. First, notice, I've alluded to this. He says, Zacchaeus, he calls him by name. The question Zacchaeus might very well have is, Jesus, how do you know my name? The answer is, he's God. Right? He knows Zacchaeus' name. He knows your name. And if we were to press into it even more, we would know that not only does he know his name, Jesus knows how many hairs are on the head of Zacchaeus' head. And not only does Jesus know how many hairs are on the head of Zacchaeus, Jesus knows how many hairs are on every single person who lives in the house of Zacchaeus. Jesus knows him intimately. Jesus knew Zacchaeus in his mother's womb. God is sovereign. There is no knowledge that God lacks. Second, notice, Jesus says, hurry and come down. It's interesting, that's an imperative. Like, Jesus is not asking here. Make no mistake, he's not saying, You know, Zacchaeus, if you get around to it, come on down. Zacchaeus, would you please do me a favor and come down? No, he's imperative, immediate action. Zacchaeus then might very well ask, why? Why would you have me come down from this tree? Well, Jesus gives the reason. I must stay at your house today. The implication here is that Jesus is going to stay overnight with him. Once again, Zacchaeus very well could reply and say, Who said? Who told you, Jesus, that today you must stay at my house? Zacchaeus, who has... I mean, Zacchaeus is asking Jesus, could have asked Jesus, Who has determined that you are to be at my house today? Well, from the verse, you see... God has determined this. Um, You can circle this, you can underline this, but it's an interesting word, this word must. In the Greek, it's pronounced die, not to kill die, but D-E-I. It is what you call a divine necessity. It means this has been arranged all by God in his sovereignty. In other words, it has been predetermined that that was the day that Jesus would come and tell Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house. I would say this, church, um, there are no accidents. There's only appointments that we were unaware of. Zacchaeus just ran into an appointment that he was unaware of. Jesus knew that morning that he would indeed be staying that night in the house of Zacchaeus. Once again, God lacks no information. Six, verse six, because of this, because of all of this is going on, check out what our our man Zacchaeus does. So he, Zacchaeus, hurried. I love that word. He didn't debate. Hurried, came down, and looked received him, that's Jesus, joyfully. With great joy, he receives him. Church, that's what I call an appropriate response. That's an appropriate response. Immediately obeying, receiving with joy. So I like to do this um, 
opposite, you know what is not an appropriate response? To sit in the tree, sit there and say, Jesus, keep on walking. No, I will not come down. No, you cannot stay in my house. Now, you might wonder who who would do that. That would be crazy to have Jesus look at you, call you by name, say, come down, I'm staying at your house. And you say, no, keep walking. That would seem outrageous, right? But nonetheless, I believe that we all have done this at some time and are in a lot of danger of doing it even this very moment, and maybe you are. I've seen this. I've seen this countless times in different countries and different areas and in different here in this church and in other places. Um, maybe you visit church. And maybe while you're at church, as the gospel's being preached, Jesus calls you by name, and you know it, and it hits you in your heart. And Jesus tells you, you are not a believer. You have not repented of your sins. You have not trusted in me for salvation. And what I want you to do is I want you to get up from that pew and I want you to in the service come and talk to someone and I want you to repent and turn and believe and you sit there and you say, well, usually you say it while you're holding on really hard to the pew. You ask me how I know because it was me at a time. No, no, I will not, Jesus. I will not do that. Keep on walking. You're tapping on the wrong shoulder, Jesus. You got the wrong man. No. Or... Maybe you're at church, maybe you're somewhere else. By the grace of God, Jesus, maybe you're a believer. Maybe by the grace of God, Jesus makes you aware that you're not the husband you're to be. You're you're supposed to be. You're not treating your children correctly. Maybe there's some specific sin in your life, and, and God in his graciousness convicts you of it. But instead of receiving it joyfully, you say, no, Jesus, just keep walking. Here's my question for those who do that. Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are that you can sit there and tell the God of the universe to keep walking? By the way, I want to make sure I say this as kindly as I can. I'm in that group too. I've done that. I've done that. And I look back and I'm like, who do I think I was? What was I doing? As though it's a small thing to hear from God. As though it's a small thing for God to convict you of sin and ask you to repent. But not Zacchaeus. Not Zacchaeus. He hears God, Jesus say his name, and he calls him. And he responds joyfully. Get to verse 7. And when they, that's the crowd, and it's a great big crowd, saw it, and they've just witnessed what took place. They all, man, grumbled. All means every one of them. That's a, it's all-inclusive. He, that's Jesus, has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. There's a lot we could talk about there. Time does not permit, but this is what I would have us know this morning and recognize. Heads up, all right? When you obey Jesus... Ain't everybody going to be happy, all right? You're going to be obeying Jesus. You're going to be following Jesus. You need not think everyone's going to be saying, good job, good job. I have yet to see a a person um, obey Jesus and not have a grumbler somewhere in some capacity, but that's what's happening here. All right. We see Zacchaeus. 
We get a picture of Jesus and what he's just done, the sovereignty and his goodness and his graciousness. And in verse 8, I want us to look at the great salvation. This is where we begin to answer our question, why did Jesus come? Verse 8, and Zacchaeus stood. Three words, we'll pause there. Um, Why are we pausing there? Because this word stood really grabbed me. In the Greek, that word could be translated or has the meaning of took a stand. Right? Zacchaeus takes a stand. He's no longer being tossed around by what the world says or what the world thinks. He's no longer chasing after things that do not, cannot satisfy and bowing to false gods. No, it says here, he hurried down, he received Jesus joyfully, and then he takes a stand, much like Joshua in the Old Testament. He is saying, as for me and my house, we will worship the Lord. Now we get, after he takes the stand... Now, here's an interesting thing. You see, there's a shift going on in the second half here. At some point in here, God saved Zacchaeus. And how do I know that? There's several ways. First way I understand, I see is this here. At this point, he takes a new direction. He now has, you're going to see this, a new affection. He's got new desires, and he has new things that he wants to live with. For it's an immediate transformation in his life. Here's what he said after he takes a stand and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. No longer stealing money, but giving money. No longer worshiping money, but using money for the glory of God. He is a new man. He is living up to his name. Staggering. Immediately, he lost 50% of his wealth. Don't miss it. There's a crowd, a huge crowd there. They're all hearing him, right? And he says, any of you, any of you around me right now, if I have defrauded you in any way, come to me. I will repay you fourfold. And you can go tell your friends, you know where I live. This man possibly, probably lost 75% of his wealth at that moment. Immediately transformed, passing from death to life. He's living up to his name. Verse 9, what is Jesus going to say? And Jesus said to him, see, Jesus confirms right now that he has indeed passed from death to life. Today, salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. He's confirming. He's saying, yes, I know not how the the gospel was proclaimed to him. I know not how he exactly um, um, uh, repented and um, and, and called upon Jesus for salvation. I don't know, but that it happened is no doubt that it happened from his transformed life to Jesus' affirmation here. And here we go, church. Here we go, church. Here we go. We're going to get the answer to our question. Verse 10, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Boom. And there it is. There it is. We're told from the mouth of Jesus why he came. I want to walk through this because I want us to 
see the depths of this. Look. Son of man. He says, son of man. That is Jesus' favorite self-identification in the scripture, calling himself son of man. Now that refers to his incarnation, his humanity, but it's bigger than that. It also refers to all 39 books of the Old Testament. It is the messianic title. He is saying, I am indeed the Messiah that was promised and prophesied about for 39 books of the Old Testament. It is me. And he says, moving on, came, right? This tells his purpose, what he's doing. It's referring to his incarnation. Now, he is not telling them why he came to Jericho. He's telling them why he came to this world. And then he gives us the reason, the causality, the purpose, to seek and to save the lost. Could not be more clear. It could not be more clear. It's, it's not like this is some obscure verse. In other words, Jesus did not primarily come to be a good teacher. He did not come to be a moral leader. He did not primarily come to advocate ideals that would raise people's spiritual consciousness. He did not primarily come to provide a human example of a noble religious life. He did not primarily come to feed the homeless, heal the sick. He did not primarily come for those purposes. Those are not his mission. They may be byproducts of his mission, but his mission is clearly to seek and to save the lost. Well, amen, amen. The question I would also have, and we can say that, and it's true and it's right. The question I have is this, this, what exactly does that mean? What does that mean? Well, let me... Let's push into this. Let's sit on this. To seek. In the Greek, it's zateo. It means to pursue, to look for, to search for. All right? We see here that God is the one looking. To save. It means to rescue from harm and deliver for danger. I'll pause there, and I'm sitting there thinking, what, do I, what am I in danger of, Jesus? What do I need to be saved from? The wrath of God. The wrath of God. I have rebelled against him, sinned against him. Well, how do you save me from the wrath of God? There's only one way to be saved from the wrath of God, and that is for one willing, perfect substitute to voluntarily die in my place for my sin. And then we see seeking and saving. Who is he seeking and saving? He makes it really clear. He uses this word lost in Greek, It is a condition of being. It means someone who is permanently in the state of lostness. But it's even fuller than that. The word is Apollo me. It means those who will be destroyed. All right? So it's intense. We can do it. One, Jesus came to pursue, to look for, to search for those who needed rescue and delivery from the wrath of God of God because they're in a condition of a permanent state of lostness and they will be destroyed. It's heavy. That's heavy. Nonetheless, that's verse 10. I would say this is perhaps one of the most important scriptures laid out in all the Bible. God seeks and saved, saves otherwise damned sinners. It could not be more clear. The question that might arise, and this is a good question, 
Why? Right? Why? Why would you do that, Jesus? Why would you do that? The answer? Because God is a saving God. It is his nature. You go all the way back to, I just open your Bibles, go to page number one, start in verses, chapters one, two, culminate in chapter three. We see something. We see Adam and Eve are told if they eat of a certain fruit in the garden that they will surely die. What do they do? They, of their own free will, they choose to sin against God, right? What do they, this is really important. What do Adam and Eve do once they sin? Hide. They hide from God. They do not seek God. They do not want God. They are hiding from God. You just read a little bit farther in there. What is the first thing you see God doing? Looking for them. God comes to the garden and he says, where are you? Where are you, Adam? Where are you, Eve? And that's been going on since the beginning of time. That's where we are today. It still goes on. Everything from the Old Testament points to it. Everything in the New Testament explains it. Make no mistake. He does it all. I didn't find him. He's not lost. I don't even have the ability to find him. You say, how is that possible? We're told two reasons why you and I don't have the ability to find God. One, we're blinded by the evil one. Two, we're dead to spiritual things. Now, when I say this, I get it. I've been here, and I've wrestled through this. And I say this, and and there's a tendency in the flesh to say, no, I did something to merit his love. Somehow I did something, right? Like, I'm sharper than the rest of the six billion people in this world, or is it seven billion? I don't know. I am a little bit better than them. I try a little bit harder. I'm a little bit cleaner. Somehow there was something in me that attracted God to me. But I say, how is that possible? How is is that possible? The only way you could say that if you're unaware of your condition prior to salvation. I have a tendency to think too highly of myself, and I have a suspicion that many of us do. So from time to time, I like to remind myself of who exactly I am apart from the grace of God. This is my condition before God saved me. This is not all of it. This is part of it, but I just want to read it to you because I think it has a way of sobering us up. Genesis 6-5. Once again, you can take this any way you want to. Here's one way you could take it. I'm painting a picture of myself prior to Christ. I am one who does evil continually. Genesis 6, 5. Proverbs 29, I am unpure. Ecclesiastes 7, not righteous or good. Ecclesiastes 9, 3, full of evil and madness. Psalms 58, wicked and estranged. Isaiah 53, 6, I had gone my own way. Isaiah 65, 2, I was rebellious. John 3, oh well, okay, so you look at that. And there's more. You know, that's Old Testament. You got any new school? Yeah, I got some New Testament. John three nineteen, among those who love darkness. John 8, Romans 6, a slave to sin. John 8, a child of the devil. Acts 7, 51, nails me. Unrighteous, not understanding, not seeking God, a stiff neck resistor of the Holy Spirit. Turn aside, worthless, not doing good, having a hard heart. Romans 
3, without fear of God. Romans 8, hostile towards God. 1 Corinthians, spiritually foolish. Ephesians, spiritually dead and among the children of wrath. Ephesians 4, dark and alienated, marked by ignorance, hard heart, callousness, including every perversion, greed, impurity of every kind. Philippians, living among the enemies of the cross of Christ. Colossians, dead. Titus, defiled and unbelieving. 1 John, under the power of the evil one. Titus, foolish, disobedient, led astray among slaves of various passions. Pleasures, passing my days in malice and envy, hating others and being hated in return. Now that's a picture of me. Now the question is, is in that condition, how in the world would I even consider looking for God? That is me without him. He saved me, otherwise I would never have looked for him. And here's the deal, here's the deal. This doesn't surprise me. It does not surprise me that I'm a sinner. You know what surprises me continually? Was that he's only been gracious to me. Continual, just grace upon grace. It's like, here's some grace for you, Travis. Oh, I got some more for you, Travis. Hey, here's some more grace. He is good and he is gracious. I have not received anything but good things from his hand. First Peter says, God is the God of all grace. So, let's land on our question one more time. Why did Jesus come to seek and save the lost? I submit to you, if that was why God came in the flesh, God the Father sent, or God the Son clothed in flesh, if that was his mission, should it not also be our mission? Should we not be wanting to leverage all that we have to tell as many as we can about the greatest thing that we know? And I believe we do as a church. We, I love, we do, we do, we do. But we want to always make sure that we are like Zacchaeus. We receive it. We're gracious and joyous and we obey. He came to seek and save the lost. Before we wrap up, I want to do something real quick. So I read and sometimes I read too much and sometimes I find that I've read so much that I've neglected other things. But... Um, Here's my question I had. It's a lame question, but it was my question. And so my question was this. Whatever happened to Zacchaeus, right? What happened to him? You see, Scripture doesn't say. But oddly enough, some early church historians have something to say. Now, this isn't Bible, okay? I'm not telling you Bible right now. This is early church history. Nothing contradicts it, so I have no reason to doubt it. But there's an early church father named Clement of Alexandria. You can Google it. Um, He wrote a lot of early church history. But he wrote, um, I read it this week, but he wrote something called, it's known as the Clementine Homilies. You can Google them. There's 20 homilies. In the third homily, chapter 63, he says some interesting things. But in the third homily, chapter 63, he says that Zacchaeus went on to become the bishop or pastor of Caesarea. I find that amazing. I find it amazing because I've seen it happen. God takes men and women who were, did not love him, did not care for him, but he woos them and he saves them and then he used them for his glory. Um, I haven't shared this. I'll share it. Here's my quick timeline in my head. This is lame. Okay, but 
Here's what I think happened. This is not Bible at all. This is just me reading. I think, you know, he came to faith. Um, he might have went to Jerusalem. He might have saw Jesus crucified. But when Stephen was stoned, there was a persecution in Jerusalem. I think Zacchaeus probably fled to Caesarea. Caesarea was a Roman town. He surely had friends there. Church started there. They saw how amazing and loving and serious he was, and he eventually became their pastor. So that's what I think kind of happened. Might not have, but either way, that's Zacchaeus. We see here that none of us are beyond being used for our generation for the glory of God. Well, I hope this was helpful to you. If while listening, you realized you need to take the next step in your relationship with Jesus, we would love to help you with that. You can connect with us by clicking the link in the show notes to our website and then clicking the Connect Card button. In our weekend worship services, we are in a six-week sermon series called Jesus in the Midst. John chapter 13 and 14 record Jesus' final words to his disciples in the upper room. They are about to enter the darkest moment in history, and Jesus shares with them the essentials of what they need to walk through them. You know, the things they needed in the midst of their darkest hour are the same things we need in ours. We would love for you to join each week at one of our campuses or online. You will find service times by clicking the link in the show notes to our website. Lastly, there are so many ways for you to get involved and be a part of what God is doing at Silverdale. We really want you to feel welcome and a part. So please stay connected. Be sure to like and follow us on all our different social media accounts. You'll find all the links in the show notes of this episode. And lastly, help us spread the word about this podcast. Take a moment to share this episode with your family and friends. Again, we appreciate you listening and hope you will join us again next time.